0: Our speaker today, uh, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to finally get him uh, into the seminar series. Is uh, one of the most senior and celebrated cybersecurity specialists, in, in well, really the world, uh, certainly the country. And uh, that's because of a very long history. You can see in his bio on the website, Steve has been involved in a number of things, and I would say. To the positive for most of them. Uh, um, he's uh, um, on the faculty at Columbia. He's been a uh, staff member at uh, Bell Labs. Um, uh, for those of you who are students or or in the field, I would recommend the two books that he has listed. Uh, one is a classic from several decades ago about firewalls, and one more recently on thinking security. It distills a great deal of wisdom in. The field, uh, he his record. I'm not going to go through all of it, but if you if you see he's worked in academia, in industry, he served in government advisory positions, and has probably forgotten more than most currently working in the field have ever learned. But he's going to share with us some of that experience, looking back on 35 years of securing the internet. So welcome, Steve Bellovan, and thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Gene, and I won't go into our uh, shared scandalous history today. So let me share screen, share slides, and we should be off. Okay. So yeah, okay, the topic is 35 years of defending the Internet. And, you know, security problems on the Internet go back a lot further than you would think. Uh, You know, we'll start our story in the 1980s and two very notable things happened in the 80s. In in fact, in 1988, Cliff Stoll published a communications, the ACM article called Stalking the Wiley Hacker back when CACM was a journal and not a magazine. He described how his, height, his site was hacked about two years earlier and how he monitored the hacker and traced him, wrote a book. He even got the episode of Nova called the KGB, the computer and me. And in November of 88, we had the first internet worm. So we have, all these problems are solved, right? So let's take a look back in history. In 86, Cliff Stoll was an astronomer hard to get a job as an astronomer. So he was working as a system administrator at Lawrence Berkeley Labs. And back in those days, you paid for CPU time. And that was not a standard feature of the uh, Unix systems he was administering. So Lawrence Berkeley Labs had its own homegrown package. And there was a 75 cent accounting discrepancy. The individual charges billed to individual accounts did not add up to the total billable time.
2: He wondered what had happened. He investigated,
1: tried to track down, found that there was a hacker. Tracking down the hacker took almost a year. And he learned several interesting things. Penetrations were happening via password compromise. There were default passwords on many of the systems. Account system, password manager, field and service, Guest and guest, and so on. And they're even open accounts with no passwords. People would share their passwords with each other via email or store passwords in files. And although Stoll didn't realize it to late in the game, the attacker was even doing password guessing attacks, which had actually been described by Morris and Thompson uh, in the late 70s. And they used, the attacker used bugs in the system to gain root privileges or administrator privileges, privilege escalation. And another thing that we still see today, the attacker was hard to trace because they used stepping stones. They didn't hack into Stoll's machines directly from their own home computers. They'd hack it to somebody else and then use that to go after uh, Cliff's machines. And he got Curious responses, when he realized that he'd been hacked, he went to the FBI. Well, sir, how much did this cost you? 75 cents, go away. We're not going to waste our time on a 75 cent loss. The CIA was actually quite intrigued by the concept of somebody hacking an internet computer and wanted to know more about it. And the NSA was very interested they wanted to know about the attacker's techniques and for that matter cliff's techniques in tracing the attacker but his management was less amused why are you wasting your time on this you know patch the holes and don't worry about the 75 cents well he he actually traced the hacker to germany and wanted to uh, get a wiretap or something to see what exactly was going on and you The German state prosecutor was not going to act against uh, somebody without a proper search warrant, which is a good thing. And since it was an international case, they would have to be contacted through proper diplomatic channels by high-level U.S. uh, officials.
2: The response a lot of
1: the... uh, Stuff there was not at all, hasn't gone away. The social response from his friends was more interesting. One friend said, so what? Someone's always had control over information and others always tried to steal it. This was just a different manifestation. Another friend said a computer system isn't private like a house. Just because someone doesn't have official permission to use it doesn't mean that he's got no for legitimate reason to be there. But Cliff's own perspective is whenever a fun-loving student breaks into a system as a game and forgets that he's invading people's privacy, endangering other people's data, it shows paranoia and distrust. And although we'll go into it, one of the computers he that was hacked was today what today we would call an Internet of Things computer, something attached to a a medical diagnostic machine, patient data, very private.
2: So Cliff wanted
1: to trace the attacker and required the attacker to stay on longer. He noticed the attacker seemed to be looking for defense information. So he created fake documents and indices about what was then called the Strategic Defense Initiative, an anti-missile system in President Reagan's era. And that really caught the attention of the attackers. He even got a physical letter asking for more documents. That physical letter probably came from a Soviet bloc agent. And by the way, once he had that physical letter, about asking for more information and more documents about a defense project. Boy, did the FBI get very interested.
2: You know, Cliff
1: realized when he analyzed it that passwords were a serious problem. If a password was memorable memorable memorable, could be memorized easily, it was guessable. If it was a random password, that you'd have to store it in in a file because you uh, couldn't remember it. No one's going to guess it, but then someone's going to find that file and get a password. Systems were not secure as shipped. And Bob Morris, whom I knew from Bell Labs at the time, was chief scientist to the NSA's National Computer Security Center, realized that uh, usable security was very important quote, we've got to turn this around. Secure computers might keep the bad guys out, but if they're so bulky that nobody will use them, it won't be much progress. People were not installing patches from vendors. Vendors were not as rapid in responding to the security holes then as they are today. But people weren't installing the patches. And if you found a hole, how did you contact the vendor responsibly to uh, disclose the problem and even in 1986 hackers weren't novel most of the other sites that cliff stole contacted had hacker problems there weren't that many hosts on the internet in 1986 but dial-up modems were very common attacker techniques included dumpster diving fishing through the trash to go find uh logins, passwords, and so on, and social engineering, talking your way in. And the attacker's goal was to gain, eventually, root access on the system, be able to get at anything on the system and do whatever they wanted. We had another interesting security incident uh, in late 1988, after Cliff had published his books, became called the internet worm. And to paraphrase or use a line that was also used about Algol 60, it was an improvement on nearly all of its successors. It was a multi-platform worm. It ran on VAX hardware from the Digital Equipment Corporation and Sun3 hardware from Sun Microsystems. Both companies are now long gone. It used many different vectors to spread, a security hole in the mail daemon called SendMail, a buffer overflow in a network daemon called FingerD, password guessing, and the fact that some computers would trust some others. The payload spread by this worm was encrypted to hinder analysis. It was not intended to be malicious. There was no malicious payload, but it was, had an exponential growth rate. And, you know, I don't care what your constant is, if it's greater than one, if it's exponential growth, it's going to spread and spread and spread and spread and spread and it clogged hosts and network links to the point that when nobody could get anything done. Now, the person behind this, Bob Morris, was a graduate student at Cornell. He was the son of the Bob Morris I'd mentioned earlier rather embarrassing for the father. Uh, The first person ever convicted under under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, hefty fine, went back to graduate school a few years later at MIT. He's now a very distinguished school professor there, member of the National Academy of Engineering. So that was the 80s. We didn't have too much activity because the internet wasn't that well-known except to a few people. The 1990s, things were starting to change with the growth of firewalls as a defensive measure and the World Wide Web as a way for people to get at systems. And Cliff realized that there was an issue here. Hardening one computer is like securing an apartment house. It's something that's feasible. But if you have a network of computers that are all sharing files and interchanging mail, you can't secure it the same way. It's like a, trying to secure a city. But that was one of things that Bob Morris was supposed to be thinking of. How do you secure the internet? Or even all of the computers at a particular site. Too many computers were vulnerable. Hardening them all was too hard. And in the early 1990s, the scalable solution that presented itself was the firewall. You know, firewalls were not a revolutionary concept. The notion of a single gateway host for an organization wasn't new. You know, I installed one on a Bell Labs machine when I joined the labs in 1982. Other organizations had done the same for a lot of different reasons, but security was one. Packet filters dated to 1989, Uh, Jeff Mogul. Cryptographic access control to networks, Deborah Estrin and Gene Zutek. Bill Cheswick, a colleague uh, at Bell Labs, wrote uh, built an application firewall in 1990. And Bill and I published the firewalls book in 1994, which, by the way, you can find online for free at wileyhacker.com. But because the Internet was starting to become commercial, we started to see commercial firewalls appearing. And the important point about the firewall, from our perspective, was that they were a scalable defense. In modern terminology, a firewall has a much smaller attack surface, or did in 1994, than a typical host. It could be professionally administered by a professional security paranoid. It was a choke point. Bill likened it to customs inspection. All traffic in or out of the organization had to go through the firewall. It could log what was going on. But my view was slightly different. Apart from that, I was trying to deal with all of the buggy software on hosts. And what I said in the talk was firewalls were the network response to a host security problem. Now, even in 1994, we knew that firewalls were not
2: the perfect defense. A
1: firewall doesn't provide any protection against an attack coming in at the higher level of the network stack than where the firewall is operating. So if your firewall is a packet filter, uh, looking at IP addresses and port numbers, If you decide to allow email in, port 25, you're letting it in. If there is a problem with your mailer, it's going to go breeze right through your firewall. And, you know, we said this in our book. There was a problem in SendMail, another one. And certain email header lines could tickle some of these bugs in SendMail. We were, our firewall was not looking at these header lines. It was looking at the circuit connection on port 25. The other problem, and this was turned out to be one of the fatal flaws in most firewalls as a defense, is that firewalls depend on topology. If there's a connectivity that doesn't pass through the choke point, the firewall provides no protection.
2: But the other thing that was happening around that time
1: was that the World Wide Web happened. It made the internet accessible to ordinary users. You didn't have to learn the arcane command language of the FTP command, file transfer protocol, which is the way we shared files before the web. You started seeing consumer ISPs. Your dial-up was now going instead of to an end host. going to an ISP and then you would be fully on the web on the net, internet and have the web browser to let you connect places. It wasn't a serious security issue just then because the web wasn't quite an attack vector. There There weren't many interesting sites to hack yet on the web in the early 90s. We were still having a lot of problems with computer viruses This was the MS-DOS era. And these were often spread by floppy disks, not over the internet. So the web was not initially a serious security threat, though of course that was going to change. And that changed by the late 1990s, when we started getting not just viruses on on the internet, but also worms. And this, by the way, does not depict a scalable defense against computer worms. One of the things that happened was a 1996 publication by someone who went by the handle of Aleph One called Smashing the Stack for Fun and Profit. It was a cookbook explanation for how to carry out buffer overflow attacks. When Morris the Younger did it in 1888, he had nothing but his own intellect to guide him and invented how to do it himself. All of one
2: said, here's exactly what to do.
1: We had a lot of new sites joining the internet and the people running these sites, they were very smart, they were very competent, but they were not battle hardened. They had not been fighting off attackers. For five years. So their system administration was not up to the task of deflecting the attackers. And in the commercial world, this was the period of the first internet boom. Code bases for software products from basically any vendor you can think of grew much faster than the quality control at these vendors. The mantra was in effect, ship first, debug later because if you didn't ship first and get your product out there, you probably wouldn't be around to ship later. You'd be out of business. So people, companies were shipping buggy code. And of course, buggy code is like honey, not a honeypot, but honey
2: for an attacker. And
1: as the web grew quite rapidly, very many consumer-facing companies joined the web, and that included financial institutions. You know, there's that old line about you know, to Willie Sutton, the bank robber. It didn't actually happen, but you know, why did you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Banks were now online. And we also found spammers discovering the joys of email, sending email. Spam to clog our inboxes. A lot of US military sites were on the internet. Some of them were penetrated. One was penetrated so seriously with what the defenders thought was a sophisticated enough attack that this was seriously believed to be hostile military activity by a foreign country. President Clinton himself was notified by his national security advisor. It was actually a few teenagers from Israel and California. But the potential was there. The NSA understood the potential of military-grade hacking. And they launched a uh, exercise called Operation Eligible Receiver. And they showed that starting with a computer, a PC, with a dial-up modem, you could get to the US power grid. This was alarming.
2: Because we had a lot of buggy hosts,
1: it became feasible to write worms, not like, not like a virus. This would spread by itself along the lines of what uh, Morris the Younger did in 88. The I love you worm spread via email and low-grade social engineering. Oh, click on, click on this uh, on this image. It's a nude picture of so-and-so. The SQL slammer worm spread via UDP. And if you know your internet protocols, this means it could spread a lot faster. You didn't have to wait for lots of round-trip times to set up the connection. Code Red infected Microsoft web servers, and it turned out that lots of laptops were running web servers and database servers, unknown to the users. That was not their purpose, but some applications they had installed required a web server and a database server. Most of these worms had no particular goal, but like the internet worm of 88, they clogged the network. In fact, the links were so badly clogged by the blaster worm that it blocked CSX railroad signaling network.
2: You know, the thing that keeps our trains safe.
1: Badly enough that they actually had to mention this in their quarterly report as a risk factor. So what was actually going on? There was a lot more buggy code out there than people had imagined. And a lot of it wasn't stopped by firewalls. I love you as email. So it passed right through. Laptops that were traveling were infected by code red. In fact, I was, when code red hit, I was at the at IETF Internet Engineering Task Force meeting in London. And I put some, I heard about this. I coded up a a monitor program, ran it on my laptop, which was not running Windows. And uh, there were a fair number of infected laptops at the meeting. And these people were going to go home and plug their laptops into their corporate network when they got home and uh, infect their corporations. Telecommuting, traveling employees were unprotected by firewalls. VPNs mostly did not exist. There weren't that many computers. Family members often shared the employee's laptop. And there were business to business links that bypassed the firewall. And when you think about all of these things, the properties necessary for successful firewalling, the ones that uh, Chez and I had identified in 1994, no longer held. There was not one choke. There was not one choke point. Things were not protected. There were multiple entry points,
2: so firewalls were no longer acting as the defense that they were just six, eight years earlier.
1: And in two thousand, the mid two thousands, we had another shift in what was happening or the attacks. Suddenly, around 2003, these destructive worms stopped happening. And we started seeing worms that were not destructive, but seemed to be professionally written, high quality code. New York Times uh, noticed this. Computer security experts and law enforcement officials are struggling to understand the motives of a mysterious software author who appears intent on prying open many of the electronic locks on
2: the internet. A security researcher from Finland was the one who nailed it. I think the motivation is clear, it's money. The attackers
1: had figured out a way to monetize hacking. I, yeah, if you're good, you can write a worm to shut down the internet. But if you're making money for, from hacking, you don't want to shut down the internet. That's bad for your business. And why waste your time and effort on just you know, this joy hacking when you can profit? That was a scary realization. One of the sources of profit was actually the spammers. Spam was originally sent by open relays. It's incomprehensible right now, but in the mid-1990s, you could go find a mail server on some random host and send it a message saying, and say, relay it to someplace else. Well, defenders realized this was being used to send spam, so those were being closed down. Only authorized users could send email through a particular mail server. So the spammers and the hackers came up with this idea. Hack individuals' computers. Let them send out the spam via their authorized email account. And then the spammers were paying the hackers to do this. So there was a profit motive for hacking and the market worked its magic. We had high
2: quality hackers hacking for profit, and being paid by the spammers. And they
1: developed more techniques like phishing. People were doing online banking and logging in with passwords. Phishing emails, keystroke loggers could collect those passwords. Email was not being scanned properly, not being blocked by the firewalls. There were buggy applications like Flash that were out there You visited a website that used, and you had a buggy browser, a buggy Flash plugin. Flash, thankfully, is gone. Your PC was going to be penetrated, and you'd get a keystroke logger uh, planted, which would pick up your banking, credit card, banking password, your credit card numbers, and so on. And you'd be fished to go to the wrong website. You know, having a Certificate is supposed to be the defense against that. But that didn't help because of a usability issue. People were not noticing the absence of a correct certificate. They noticed, they may or may not notice the presence. Most did not. But who's going to notice the absence of a subtle little lock icon? Even today, when most websites are encrypted with TLS. I dare say that most people do not glance up at the URL bar and see if that lock icon is present. Certainly, people were not doing this in the mid-2000s.
2: I don't normally do it.
1: On the bright side, software quality started to improve. Microsoft had so many security problems with their web server, IIS, that. The Gartner Group, a major corporate consulting group, warned its its clients, ditch IIS, use this open source web server, Apache, written by this group of leftover hippies and open source and so on, because it's more secure than this product that you're paying good money for. This did not amuse Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer. They got religion. They decreed that their code was going to be improved and made much more secure. And jumping ahead of the game, Windows is some of, today's versions of Windows are the most secure general purpose stuff out there. And I say that as a dedicated Mac user. The internet boom crashed, the bubble popped as bubbles do, drove a lot of companies out of business, but that meant there was less pressure to ship fast. So you had time to test and debug your code. But no one had the time or money, even Microsoft, to rewrite all of the old buggy code. In fact, if you tried it, you'd probably just introduce new bugs in really complex packages. And you still had the need for backwards compatibility. Vendors started taking patching far more seriously. All operating systems by this point in most applications were alerting users to the presence of patches. Microsoft decided to make life easy for system administrators by scheduling by creating patch Tuesday. Scheduled releases of updates to an ease the system administrator load. Why? Because once a patch is out there, what a patch is out there, attackers will reverse engineer the patch to see where the hole is. And sometimes Microsoft has to ship a patch out of cycle because there's a serious attack in the wild. And the fundamental problem with patching still remains. If a patch is not correctly tested against your environment, it could brick your system, make it useless, or cause other serious problems with your own applications. A remarkable number of applications are working only because they're quite inadvertently relying on bugs in your system and the patch fixes those and your applications are not working so patching cuts both ways you fix the security holes but you break your own applications and maybe you'll break the system one of the more notorious uh, patches came from apple about eight years ago to iphones it suddenly couldn't they suddenly couldn't make phone calls If you regard a phone as just a small pocket computer, that might not be serious, but some people use phones for making calls. Apple came out with a fix for that within two days. But they've also bricked iPads, Microsoft has bricked computers, et cetera, et cetera. Patching is not a benign activity. Patches can introduce their own bugs. And by the end of that decade, The militaries of the world started to take very serious
2: notice of the internet, uh,
1: riffing on what Cliff Stoll had noticed in 86. The internet is now part of most countries' critical infrastructure. And when you have targets, these attract weapons. When you have information, it attracts spies. The militaries and the spy agencies of the world understand this very well. And here you have dedicated professionals whose job it is to hack other countries' computers and do so
2: undetectably. Phishing got
1: refined to spear phishing. You go after a particular target. And how does that work? You learn something about your target. Someone in HR might want to see, might just blindly open a resume that's sent to them. Researchers look at papers in their area. You know, if Svap sent me a PDF and said, Steve, can you take a look at this? It's written by one of my students. I'd probably open it. And use lures aimed at your target, tailored to the individual recipient. It takes background work, but, you know, spies know how to do that sort of thing. The high-end attackers today are very skillful and have vast resources. Spear phishing works better if you know a lot about the target, but, yeah, that's what the intelligence agency's bread and butter. Lesser threats are still serious when employed by skilled agents. And why use a complex exploit when a, sim- when a simpler one works? Don't burn your really good exploits. Try something simple first. If that doesn't work, use something more difficult. And Even less developed countries have been remarkably quick to develop sophisticated military hacking skills. It's remarkable how quickly North Korea has come up to speed because that's a country that's basically not on the internet. But they devoted the resources to it, and they're pretty good. Not great,
2: but pretty good. We're seeing sophisticated
1: attacks. 15 years ago, Buffer overflows were 50% of all attacks. Technology has stopped most of those, but now we have things like return-oriented programming or the code reuse attacks. Today's exploits have to be far more complex. They're multi-stage. Get a beachhead, escape a sandbox that your browser is running in, do privilege escalation. You're chaining together multiple vulnerabilities to penetrate a system. And there's a huge array of targets or the country's government and military infrastructure, or the critical infrastructure like the power grid, well-placed monitoring points to go spy on traffic, defense contractors, commercial technologies that might be of interest to your country's industries, personal information databases, dissidents, especially if you're a uh, authoritarian government, more or less anything else imaginable. Even the ordinary thieves are better. Why plant a credit card sniffer on an individual PC when you can steal 50 million of them at a time by, uh, because you you have 50 million at a time by hacking into a store. Marriott and Quora have disclosed massive data breaches. Marriott was hacked for almost five years before they discovered it. Data was taken many of these people. I've got a question while I share these slides. There are versions of these slides already on my talks webpage. I'll send SPAF particular, this particular instantiation. I tweak it a little bit every time. We're, we have good defenses against phishing now with two-factor authentication. Corporations have long used it, but now consumers are starting to. Phones are a pretty common sep- second factor. Since most people have smartphones, whether it's via an app on your phone, which is reasonably secure, or text messages, not as secure, but uh, far better than no password at all. Microsoft, starting at Windows 10 for consumers, Google for Chromebooks, push patches out to users. They don't wait for you to patch things. They just patch it for you whether you will or not. Corporations are starting to realize the importance of speedy patching. And the virtual machine style operations made this a lot easier to spin up a new VM with a patch and see what happens. Equifax was hit about five years ago. Data on 150 million people uh, stolen. They were hit hard because they did not patch a critical system. That's something like 117 vulnerable web servers, they patched 116. So what does the future hold here?
2: Can we solve some problems? Some of these problems, or are we diving deeper
1: into the swamp? Formal methods are showing some promise. I mean, it's it's a difficult Formal methods are hard. My dissertation more than 40 years ago involved formal methods, but we're starting to see practical uses of them. Agile development and testing is useful for rapid patching, rapid fixing of bugs, rapid deployment, and so on. And because any large-scale system's got many replicas, you can try out a new version of your code on a few at a time and see if it falls over or continues to function correctly. We have difficult philosophical and ethical problems. Can the military defend the civilian parts of the internet? Do we even want it to try? There are privacy issues involved? And what if it's an ordinary thief and not a foreign government? In the U.S. at least the military is not supposed to be engaged in law enforcement. And the government gets schizophrenic about this. They keep trying to mess with our cryptography, despite warnings from many, many people that uh, we need strong cryptography to protect ourselves. And now we're getting the Internet of Things. Ed Felton commented about seven, almost exactly seven years ago. You know you're living in the future when it's time to update the firmware in your light bulbs. The IoT developers are not skilled defenders, just as happened with early internet hosts in the 90s, not battle-hardened. Developers don't know how to defend it. They're not bad developers. They just don't have this experience. Their platforms aren't hardened. They're repeating old mistakes. But there's a more serious issue. There is not an economic model for patches.
2: You buy some internet-connected device,
1: from some small company, and who is going to pay for patching it five years later? When their newer products are running on different chips with more memory and more CPU speed, and the newer code base won't run on your version of the product. Or devices that outlive their support lifetime. Maybe you could throw away your internet connected uh, light bulb but a modern car, has got, oh, 75 or 100 CPUs all connected internally by a network and probably connected to the outside by the cellular network. And we've got physical world consequences when IoT device is hacked. So when we look back at 1988, we can solve Cliff Stoll's password problem. We use password managers, and I strongly recommend them and multi-factor authentication, but deployment is a challenge. The attackers are more serious. Stoll's attackers turned out to be some West German 20-somethings who are trying to steal defense information to to, uh, sell to the Stasi to get money to buy cocaine. But now you've got professionals, and they're not going after data that doesn't exist, they're going after data that does exist. We know how to patch but not for IoT. The defenders are sharing information a lot more. We still have problems with buggy code. We still have a lot of problems with tracing and attribution, though it's a lot more possible than it once was. And Morris's concerns about usability still remain very, very real. So are we climbing out
2: of the swamp at long last? So,
1: I will now take any questions people have and drop my screen share and see what has just popped up in the Q and A here. Okay. So
2: I answered my question. So I've answered it. Okay. That one's that one's
0: answered. So do we? Yes. Have, do we have any others? There was one that was sent by email by someone who can't attend in person and I will find that and
2: ask it. Um,
0: Okay, over time, what do you see as the greatest challenge in securing the internet that you've seen?
1: I think that buggy code is the biggest problem. You know, I can wave my magic wand and deploy multi-factor authentication everywhere. Deploy strong cryptography everywhere. I do not have a big enough magic wand to fix buggy code. I think that is a problem that will be with us for the foreseeable future and probably beyond. I used to say for the rest of my professional lifetime, that's not gonna be that much longer. So I'll say just say for the foreseeable future. We, you know, code is better today but there's so much more of it. You know, when I was a graduate student uh, in the 70s, President Nixon proposed an anti missile system. And one of the objections to it was that it was going to be controlled by the vast total of 5 million lines of software. 5 million lines of software is the size of one decent application today. Never mind your operating system, never mind all of your other applications. We know how to build bigger systems, but we still have very a lot of buggy code out there. I said Microsoft, you know, Windows 11 is extremely secure, but more or less every month we get critical vulnerabilities from Microsoft to be patched on Patch Tuesday. They are very, very good, but they're not perfect. And, yeah. You know, Oh, just a new bug that was announced uh, in the last week. Google is about the, uh, is one of the most sophisticated companies about security uh, uh, and it turns out there was this nasty flaw in Android where they weren't cropping images properly and you could recover parts of the image that you had cropped out. Just came out today that that applies that bug applies to Windows as well. Again, two of the most sophisticated companies on the planet. Buggy code, even from the most sophisticated parties, is with us. Promising new approaches to protect data. Uh, People are banking on hardening. What I am interested in is, I'll call it an architectural approach to security. And by that, I mean divide up. The different components of a large-scale system to contain the damage, and make the and have more protection for the really vulnerable stuff. So let me give one simple example. Suppose that what that you decide that what's at risk. You're an e-commerce site, is the uh, is customer credit cards and customer profile data. Take the user's password and use that to encrypt
2: that customer's record. Today,
1: if, if I hack your web server, I can, get, I can just contact the database and download the entire database and get all the credit card numbers. If, on the other hand, every record is encrypted with a password, then the speed of compromise is limited to the speed of password guessing and users now have more incentive to pick better passwords, unguessable passwords. There are other kinds of architectural approaches I have in mind. Don't have time to go into them, but that will be the subject of my next book. Look for it in a few years. Uh, I expect to resume work on it in about a year. Uh, uh, Next frontier,
2: the World Wide Web. I have a really lousy track record as a profit.
1: I'm very skeptical of blockchain. I think it's answering, it was a wonderful technical achievement that was never engineered for deployability. Uh, I don't think it's mostly answering questions that we don't have. Private blockchains sometimes do. There's a NIST flowchart which says if you have multiple readers and multiple writers and no trusted party, then maybe a blockchain is the answer. Otherwise, it's probably a database. The ads, you know, I don't see the ad-supported stuff going away. Twitter may be imploding, but that, I think, is a one-of instantiation. Uh, I don't think, uh, I don't see that the commercial web is imploding right now. It'll be interesting to see what happens with some of the big tech companies in the US in the face of antitrust law, but that's a legal problem. That's not a technological issue. Uh, And so many mobile apps on our phones are ad supported too. So I don't like surveillance capitalism. Privacy is actually one of my main research areas these days, but I don't see this going, I don't see this going away. But as I said, I've got a really lousy track record as a prophet. You know, as Spaff knows, I was one of the people who designed Usenet in 1979, and I figured that it was going to be one to two messages a day from 50 to 100 computers ever. And uh, it's, you know, it's terabytes of traffic a day these days. It's not, it's past its peak in terms of the, terms of the number of users, but far more traffic than we ever anticipated. Okay. Basic OS design, could a redesign help security? I used to think so. I'm no longer as convinced. We don't have a good paradigm for what what the OS redesign should look like. Back in the 1980s, we thought we knew. The trusted computer base, get the kernel right, and that was isolating uh, itself from the users. And users from each other and that was going to protect everything but it turns out that most of the vulnerabilities these days are at the application level and the individual user level when the internet worm hits in 88 i went back and read the then current standard for computer security the so-called orange book and realized that nothing in there was going to stop the problem so i went to someone older and wiser at bell labs older and wiser in the ways of security and said Hey this is not going to solve it. Oh yeah, B3 will solve it. Uh, how so? It requires a thorough search for bugs. Uh, sorry, that doesn't work. He was far senior to me. I didn't I knew then and know now that thorough search for bugs are not going to solve the problem. A secure operating system is one that lets you write secure applications. And we've tried that, you know, on all modern operating systems we can sandbox applications. But they're so complex that attackers have learned ways to break out of sandboxes, at which point we don't have another layer of defense. Maybe really good per host intrusion detection will do it, but we don't have uh, uh, we don't have that yet. And if you re-implement something as complex as an OS, you might introduce new bugs will introduce new bugs. Quantum computers and AES as useless as RSA ciphers. That's not accurate at all. Uh, in fact, the reason for 256-bit keys in AES is precisely to make them resistant to quantum computers. Groves' algorithm makes a quantum uh, a qu- for quantum computers uh, reduces uh, the key size by half, the square, uh, the, the square root of the effort, that takes a 256-bit key down to a 122 to the 128th work factor, which the NSA feels, and I can't dispute them, is good enough. Uh, it's good enough to uh, defeat any attacker. And by the way, that requires not just a quantum computer, but a massively parallel quantum computer. So 128 so 256-bit AES is going to be secure against quantum computers as far as anybody knows now, and that includes the NSA. Uh, asymmetric cryptography, quantum computers, NIST is trying to uh, NIST is trying to standardize algorithms, expect that sometime next year. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, Blockchain, smart contracts, smart contracts are code. Code is buggy. Look at the uh, list of uh, security problems that there have been in smart contracts. In fact, the best thing to do is go to my webpage, look at, click on my class for this semester. All my slides are online. And look at the lecture I gave a week or two ago. Oh, I think it was about two, three weeks ago on blockchain. And look at all of the readings on problems with uh, smart contracts and people hacking the hosts that uh, that have these things. I don't. I do not think that blockchain solves that problem. It does not solve the security problem. I think it creates new security problems.
2: Endpoint detection machine learning, it might be promising, but uh,
1: the problem with today's machine learning is that you need to uh, train your system on what is normal. And normal activity
2: will vary. You're doing a new job. The
1: nature of your activity has shifted. You just, today I'm writing in LaTeX because I'm writing a technical paper. Tomorrow I'm writing a law review article, which I have to do in Word. Don't start me on on what it takes to write law review articles and so on. Uh, Next week I'm going to uh, actually pick up my, uh, dust off my programming skills and write some code. Any one of those things is going to cause a very different profile of activity on my computer. My workload looks very different at the start or at the end of a semester than in the middle of a semester. You know, registration for my undergraduate advisees is in about uh, two and a half weeks. This means I'm suddenly engaging in a lot more meetings. How do you get your baseline data? And you machine learning is about patterns, and when you deviate from the pattern, that's a problem. You get you can get you can get false positives. You get false negatives when the attacker has learned to do low and slow attacks. So it's a hard, it's a uh, it's a hard issue. You know, it is being used reasonably effectively against uh, viruses and worms. Past that, well, it's not my field. I don't do intrusion detection. I joke that my colleagues who do intrusion detection, uh, I like I like defensive technologies. Uh, attack papers are loads of fun, but my heart's in defense. My colleagues who do intrusion detection get to, uh, their job starts where I have failed. So uh, more power to them, I'm not going to, uh, it's not an area area I'm going to pursue. I said, my interest is in architectural security. How do I divide up the functions?
2: Any more questions? I thought I'd share with you Steve
0: um both of us uh slipped our memory um I actually wasn't here that day but you spoke uh, here at Purdue in April of 2015
1: um that he- has very much slipped my memory <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah you you gave a talk on on um, digital crime investigation and uh, Ningui Lee was uh your host and I was out of town, so I was not here. And okay, we thought,
1: well, my memory is indeed failing, so I had forgotten that too. So, uh,
0: so we still have to get you to come visit, um, when I'm also on campus. And, and that's uh, so,
1: that, that sounds like a plan, that sounds like a plan,
0: but this is very much appreciated. Um, thank you for the talk, uh, and thank you to everyone who. Uh, listened in today. Um, I'll mention that next week's seminar is uh, a little special because it is the closeout keynote of our 24th annual serious Symposium, which is also celebrating our 25th anniversary. So we have this series of sort of retrospectives of of uh, time where Steve is Been looking back over 35 years and over 25 years of the existence of Sirius here at Purdue. Our uh, speaker next Wednesday uh, for this seminar is Wendy Nather, the head of advisory uh, CISOs at Cisco. And if any of you are within visiting distance of the Purdue campus, the symposium next week uh, is open for anybody to register. Our industrial partners have underwritten the fees, so it's free attendance, but you do have to register. So we have a number of talks throughout the week, uh, throughout the uh, event. Um, The other keynote we have is Rob Lee of Dragos, uh, the CEO of Dragos, And we also have a number of speakers of various sites. You visit the website and Go to the Sirius website and click on the symposium link, and you can see some of the speakers and events and other things that are going on that day. Um, with that said, thank you, Steve. Thank you to everyone. Look forward to seeing all of you at some future event. Have a great rest of the day.
1: And thank you all for coming. It's been fun. Gene, I'll send you this. I'll send you this version of the slides, so you can just distribute it as you wish. I'm not going to put it up on my webpage because I've got too many versions of this talk on the webpage already, but you can find it on my talks webpage. I put all my stuff up, Creative yeah. Commons licensed.
0: Yeah, if you, uh, if you send it to Mike, he can add it in on the symposium entry on our security seminar page, which would be the best place for people to find it. Sounds good. I will do that. All right. Hope to see you soon. Great. Catch
2: you later. Bye. Bye-bye.